Well, let me add my welcome this morning. We are really glad to be uh, worshiping with you on this uh, beautiful day, and we're really glad you're spending your Sunday morning with us. My name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor of St. Pete's, uh, and before we dig into our passage this morning, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. Uh, we give you thanks for your goodness and kindness that you speak and say, do it again. The sun rises, the earth continues to orbit, and your mercies are new every morning. We thank you that we get to gather with your church globally and locally uh, using the means available to us. Uh, And Lord, we are eager for the day when we can meet face to face, Uh, but we thank you for the provision of uh, technology so we can at least stay connected uh, under your story, confessing that creed hearing your word, singing together. Lord, we ask that you would meet us, and that you would draw near to us, and that we would be acutely aware of your presence, uniting us, that though we are apart, we are one. So as we open your word, we ask that you'd apply it to our minds, so we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts, so we not grow cold, and that you would apply it to our feet, and that we'd not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we're beginning another mini-series within our series, The Gospel of Luke. Uh, you know over the past four weeks, we've been looking at the life and ministry of John the Baptist. And now with Lent beginning, we're going to do another five-week mini-series, and the theme is temptation. Oscar Wilde once said, I can resist everything but temptation. Now, I think that's pretty funny, uh, but it actually articulates a common sentiment in our culture. Uh, We no longer take temptation all that seriously, in part because of the greater quest to be true to what feels good and right to us, and in part because we no longer take sin all that seriously anymore either. And so when someone is talking about temptation, it's almost like they're being superstitious, isn't it? It's like there's no angel on one side and demon on another. Relax a little bit. Take a breath. Don't be so serious. Why resist these things when you could give in to them so long as you're being true to yourself and not harming anyone else? Now, it's a sad day when we fail to hear the voice of temptation in a provocation like that. You see, a flippant attitude or relegating temptation to superstition, these are common pitfalls, but Scripture invites us to cultivate our imaginations so that we can see that temptation is a very real part of life, especially the spiritual life. And the invitation of Scripture isn't to develop, you know, an unhealthy fixation or an obsessive attitude always trying to figure out what's happening, where's the temptation, but to recognize temptation for what it is, to know when it is happening, and to discover how we can respond to it. But it is tricky to talk about temptation because we might say, I'm tempted by cake, and then later that day in a disagreement with someone, you might say, I'm tempted to say something I can't take back. So what do we mean when we say temptation? Well, the first two temptations in Scripture are a piece of forbidden fruit and then murder. 
which escalated really quickly, but we see something here. Temptation is any enticement, big or small, to disobey God, to walk away from God's will and purpose for our flourishing. Any provocation to reject the ways of God for any other path is temptation. And there's forces within us, forces around us, even forces beyond us that tempt us. And in a way, it would be so much easier if it was as simple as an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. But in reality, we're tempted to walk away from God and his ways by paths dictated by ourselves and our sinful nature, by others, by our culture, and even by satanic influence. Because temptation comes in all shapes and sizes from many, many different sources. But whether you accept the reality of temptation or not, we all face temptation. None of us are exempt from this. And it is a very real threat to our souls. It's not wrong if you're tempted, but if we stop and we give way to that temptation, if we don't resist it, here's what James writes in his letter. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So whether you've been following Jesus for a while or you're exploring faith, we invite you to join us on this Lenten journey of thinking about temptation. Because ultimately, our reflections on temptation will bring life, not guilt or shame or condemnation, but life. And so when we, as we begin our mini-series this week, uh, we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. Next week, we're going to look at the genealogy, which ends chapter 3. And then we'll spend three weeks looking at Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, which is the beginning of chapter 4. And in the big picture of Luke, the baptism and genealogy of Jesus are strategically placed to frame his wilderness temptations. Luke wants us to see that temptation strikes at identity. That might not always be apparent to us, but this is what Luke is trying to help us see. Temptation strikes at identity. And that's where our mini-series begins today. So if you have a Bible, open it up to the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 21 and 22 once more. Now, when all the people were baptized by John in the wilderness, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now this is such a rich passage theologically. Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy Spirit descending upon him, God the Father speaking words of affirmation over the Son. All three persons of the Trinity are present in this passage. And this passage is one reason among many that the Apostle John in his writings said, God is love. And this is why St. Augustine said, God is at once lover, 
beloved and love itself. This is the radical claim of Christianity. God is love. Now we're going to explore this passage again on May uh, 30th for Trinity Sunday. I know that's a ways off, but we're going to look at what it reveals about God's triune nature, about God's loving nature then. Today, I want to focus in just on these words of affirmation that the Father speaks over Jesus. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. We've learned a lot about Jesus so far in the Gospel of Luke. We've been given details about his background, how and where he was born, his, his family makeup, his ethnic and religious heritage, his, his early upbringing. We've heard from angels and prophets and shepherds and even his own family that there's a one-of-a-kind significance to him. And he's given titles like the Son of the Most High, Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Titles that can only reflect one person. You see, Luke indicates from the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is more than a good teacher, more than a unique spiritual leader, more than a notable prophet. As the voice from God declares from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is who Jesus is. Now, from the vantage point of eternity, it makes sense. The love of God has flown endlessly between the Father and the Son. But now in this tender moment, God's love overflows from eternity into time. But from the vantage point of earth? From the vantage point of earth? What has Jesus done so far in his life to warrant this acclamation? He's been born. He's been raised. And he's on the cusp of his public ministry. But that's it. You see, the basis of God's love and pleasure is not in what Jesus has done or even in what Jesus is about to do. The Father loves the Son because the Father has always loved the Son. The Son is worthy of the Father's delight and pleasure because the Father loves the Son. And Luke tells us that Jesus, then, is not just the Son of God. Jesus is the Beloved Son of God. Jesus is God and man, two natures in one person, a profound mystery. But what we see in our passage is that he's fully God, fully man, and fully loved. This is his identity. You are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And then later in his ministry, Jesus turns to us and we read in John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. How astounding is that? How staggering is that? This is what Jesus says to those who believe in him. My identity, as un unbelievable as it may be, is also your identity. I've come to make it yours I'm inviting you into the love that is God. So maybe you need to hear this one more time. As the Father has loved me fully, unconditionally, completely, an eternal current of love, so I have loved you 
fully, completely, unconditionally, an eternal current of love. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. This can be your identity. Now, so much of our lives, so much of our lives are spent trying to make sense of who we are. And many things contribute to our sense of self. Important things, you know, our name and our family history, our interests, our friends, our dreams, our bodies, our past, our sense of the future, our ethnic and religious and even national heritage. But our identity is not just the sum of our parts. You know, all of these parts matter, of course. All of them contribute to creating who we are. But we don't just find ourselves by asking, who am I, and then rattling off a bunch of information. There's another question we need to ask. Whose am I? Whose am I? Are you your own? Do you write your own story and identity? You know, this is one of the dominant stories of our culture right now. No one has the right to define you except for yourself. You write your own story. And sure, we determine who we are to some extent, but countless people shape us and write our stories too. Our friends and our family and our teachers, our coworkers, just to name a few. And, and even the idea that we define ourselves is instilled from outside of ourselves from culture. You didn't come up with that idea on your own. You've been taught it. You've grown up in it. So maybe we don't own ourselves as much as we think. But have you realized that there's an alternative? That there's a different way we can approach our identity by saying, I, just, I own myself. Because that can be really challenging, isn't it? Like all of the, the, that aside, like when you're trying to define yourself, when you're searching within, when you're doing that, that exploration of your soul and identity, it's exhausting after a while. There's no stability to it. How can you know really what is your most authentic self? There's no reference point. This is why St. Basil said we're more likely to understand the heavens than we are to understand ourselves. Because that journey inward without a reference point, it, it lands nowhere. There's an alternative. Yes, we contribute to our identity. But if we ask, whose are we? We're not our own. We can belong to Christ. And if we belong to Christ, we discover an identity that has stability. We discover an endless source of compassion and understanding and love. Do you belong to Christ? The Father said to the Son, you are my Son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. And the Son says to us, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If your faith is in Christ, this is who you are because of whose you are. You are not your own. You belong to Christ. You're caught up in God's love and his unending pleasure and delight in you. God's pleasure and delight over you, who you are. But what does all of this have to do with temptation? Well, I'm glad I asked. Of this beautiful scene in Luke, the theologian, pastor, and civil rights leader, Howard Thurman, asks, have you ever had a moment like that? 
when all ambivalences disintegrate, when all the wondering aspects of your life were brought into creative focus and you felt at last all of me at every level of my being has the approval of God. Have you ever had a moment like that? Because if we've never had a moment like this or just one or even many moments of knowing God's love for us personally, the moment we start to think God approves of me, all of me, God delights in the totality of my being, God loves me, the moment we think that, don't you also hear another voice, a quiet whisper. It's not possible. Not that part. Not the part I see. Not there or that place or that spot either. Or maybe you think, I haven't felt his love, and others have. Maybe he doesn't love me. See, temptation strikes at identity. Temptation comes in the form of subversive questions like, does God really love you? How could he love you? This is the provocation of temptation. And it, we're vulnerable to these lies, and that's why temptation strikes at these tender parts of our souls. And a common temptation that directly attacks our identity is the temptation toward idolatry. Idolatry is when we allow anything, even good things, to become ultimate things. And when we derive our identity from these good things as ultimate things. You see, whatever it is, whether it's your career or your resume or where you went to school or the grades you got or the children you're raising or the person you married or the talents you have or your portfolio or your social class, whatever it is, if these things become your ultimate focus, at the end of the day, that's where you start to derive your identity. You're the sum of these things. They become ultimate things. And there's a whisper behind all of it. Trust in these things. They're enough. They're tangible. They won't let you down. They're things you can touch and feel and taste. But even if we resist that temptation toward idolatry, even if we recognize that, hey, these good things can be cherished, these good things contribute to our identity, but they're not ultimate things, even if we resist that temptation, temptation has other ways of coming after identity as well. Let's say you're tempted toward any of the deadly sins, the seven deadly sins, pride and greed and lust and envy and gluttony and wrath and sloth. You know, we wrote a series of articles on our blog about each of the deadly sins that you can look up if you want to explore each of them. But my point is, if you give in to one of these temptations in any area, if you push that boundary, if you head down that path, if you cross that line, what happens? What happens? Well, you might actually enjoy it. You might actually enjoy it. And actually, you most likely will. Because if we can't properly diagnose the pleasure of sin as disordered and unhealthy, we'll fall prey to the fact that there is pleasure in sin. You know, sin wouldn't be tempting if we derived absolutely no pleasure from it. But perhaps then, because you experience the pleasure of sin, this leads you to conclude that God has been withholding something good from you. 
Or you conclude that if you were to follow God, he's going to take away something good from you because it feels good. In this way, temptation wins the day because it changes how you relate to God because it changes how you see God. Instead of a foundation of love and trust, you now view God through the lens of suspicion. Why would he withhold something that feels right and good? Or, perhaps you take the path of temptation, but the response is different for you. Perhaps you feel the guilt and the shame of having walked down the wrong path. And maybe, though, this causes you to withdraw from God because you feel you've let God down because you've let yourself down. And so you think God must be displeased with you because you're displeased with yourself. And so you start to think, before you can turn back to God, you need to do better. You need to clean yourself up. You need to make amends and make things right before you can draw near to his love and pleasure and goodness again. But do you see what happens? Your sense of identity shifted. Because you think God's love for you is conditional upon your good behavior and your ability to withstand temptation or even your ability to clean yourself up before you come back to him. Instead of your love being upon the unconditional foundation of his love and pleasure in you because of Christ. Now, of course, the ideal is not to give in to temptation. The ideal is to resist sin. The ideal is to live a life empowered by the Spirit so that we actually become more and more like Jesus degree by degree. The ideal is to resist idolatry and have our identities firmly rooted in Christ as people who are fiercely loved by the God who will not let us go. And of course, this is imperfectly possible. We stumble our way toward transformation with more grace in our hands than we can get a hold of. But the challenge, the challenge of temptation actually makes me think of a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend. And here's what he wrote. No amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking up ourselves each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home, but the bathrooms are all ready, the towels put out, and the clean clothes are in the airing cupboard. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give it up. It is when we notice the dirt, that God is most present to us. It is the very sign of his presence. No amount of falls will undo us because God's love will not let us go. God graciously stoops down and lifts us up. And even if we can't keep picking ourselves up each time, as Lewis puts it, the Lord graciously picks us up because we have a perfectly loving Father. But how do we have this moment uh, where all ambivalence disintegrates, as Thurman puts it? How can we know for ourselves, as if the heavens are opening up for us, that God does in fact love us? How can we see that our names are engraved in his palm, that we are the apple of his eye, that God delights and rejoices in us with loud singing? How can our souls be quieted by his love so that we know, yes, we are his children. He does love us because all of these things are said in Scripture about God's people. 
How can we know it for ourselves? Well, first, it's helpful to name what inhibits us from experiencing God's love. And one of the most common things that can inhibit us is our parents. The ways that they succeeded or failed to love us well. That we often project upon God the ways we've received love growing up. But here's the thing. Even if you've had a brutal upbringing, what you need to do is name that. It's tragic, and I'm sorry that happened. But it doesn't mean it has to inhibit you from discovering God as a good father, even if it's a struggle, even if it, it's hard to imagine him as a father. Because even if you had the very best of earthly fathers, their love pales in comparison to God's love. You see, we need to name what inhibits us, what gets in the way of receiving God's love, and to just recognize it for what it is. And to invite God to meet us in that space saying, hey, I'm, I'm bringing this to the table. It makes it hard for me to trust you, or it makes me hard to think of you as a father. But I'm going to name it. I'm going to address it. I'm going to invite you into this space. So first, we can name what inhibits our experience of God's love. But second, we look to the cross. Just as heaven opened and God declared, you are my beloved son, the heart of Jesus was opened up for us on the cross. You know, yes, Jesus died for our sin in our place. Yes, he bore our sins in his body so that now our sins are put as far away as the east is from the west. We are as white as snow because Christ has forgiven us on the cross. But the heart of Jesus was opened up for us to see on the cross. He revealed God's unending love for us. That as high as the heavens are from the earth, so great is his love for us. On the cross, God opens up his love for us to behold. And he says, you are my children whom I love. Come home. Come home. This is who you are in Christ. This is who you are if you know whose you are. And his story of belovedness becomes our story too. But third, you can ask God to tell you that he loves you. You can ask God to tell you that he loves you. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, God, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And he goes on to say in that chapter that it's not when we were at our best that God loved us, but even at our worst, even while we were enemies, God loved us. And so we can ask God to pour his love into our hearts by the power of his spirit so that we can experience it for ourselves. Now, I've told this story in a sermon before, or if you've read Rhythms for Life, you've read the story in the book, but I'm going to tell it again because I love it. Uh, my, my wife, Julia, has been following Jesus since a very young age. Uh, but several years ago, she realized that she had never asked God, do you love me personally? She started to think, you know, I've never asked God just to affirm me directly, to tell me directly that he loves me. Yes, I read these things in scripture, but I, I want to hear it from his spirit. And so she started to ask every day, do you love me, God? 
It wasn't a demand. It wasn't an accusation. There was no time limit. It was just a question. Do you love me, God? Do you love me, God? Do you love me, God? She prayed and she persisted and she pursued. And about a month into this prayer, uh, in her daily readings of Scripture, she got uh, to the passion narrative where Christ is being crucified and tried. And she thought to herself, I know this. I've read this story. I don't want to read this, but she pushed into it anyway. She read it. And as she read it, she felt an impression come upon her. Words that were not her own, but that she heard clearly in her spirit, as clear as day. And these were the words, I died so that I could be with you forever. I died so that I could be with you forever. Those words now hang at the entryway of our house. Because for Julia, they're the personal articulation of what Christ says to me. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Julia, I died so that I could be with you forever. If you want to know God's love personally, ask him. Ask him to reveal his love to you in a way you can receive. I can't tell you how he's going to affirm his love for you. I can't. But I can tell you that his love for you is unchanging and available. And so pray until he answers. And sometimes God answers in dramatic ways. Sometimes it's in quiet ways. But from my experience, he tends to go with the subtleties. God whispers because he is near. If you want the dramatics, if you want the say anything boombox style declaration of God's love for you, Look to the cross. Look to Christ crucified. Look to the resurrection. There God is declaring to you personally that he loves you, that there is no length that he would not go to reconcile you to himself, to receive you back home, to pour you uh, full of his love. But if you want to hear it personally, if you want to hear it in your soul, wait for the whisper. Wait for the whisper. Ask God to pour his Holy Spirit into you. Finally, bringing this all back to temptation. If you want to withstand temptation then, your willpower is not going to cut it. Your own strength isn't going to cut it. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness in the next chapter, he's vulnerable and weak after fasting for 40 days. But he knows whose he is. He is the beloved Son of God and this is how he resists temptation. He knows who he is by the power of the Spirit, and so he resists temptation. And in the same way, when we know whose we are, we know who we are. And by that same power that was in Christ, we can resist temptation. Because God's love is stronger and better than any temptation that will come our way. And God always is willing to meet us and walk with us through whatever temptation we're facing. But even if you fall to temptation, an endless invitation remains to revel in God's grace and love for you. If you stumble or you fall, if you fail to resist a temptation and you start to hear a whisper or shouts that you're a sinner, you're a fail failure, you're broken, you're miserable, you're not enough, you can say that might be so but I belong 
to Christ. I am beloved. God is pleased in me. And you can sing with confidence these words from before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Yes, temptation loses when we resist it, when we have those little victories. But temptation loses even when we fail to resist it. Because God's love will not let us go. And there are countless second chances available to us because of grace. Let's pray.